One of the reasons I love Margie in her leadership of our ministry is I never feel like the choir is performing. I feel like they're leading us in worship. I feel like they're leading us into the presence of God. And what a wonderful reminder this day. So thank you, choir. It's good to have all of you back. My name is Mark Toon, and I work here. 29 years ago this weekend, I preached my first sermon in the Memorial Chapel, and one of the things that has sustained me over these 30 years, almost 30, coming into my 30th year, is the kindness of this congregation to allow Cindy and me and my family to to get away for much of the summer and to pray and to recharge and to refresh and to think. And uh, so I hope it's a blessing for you. It's certainly a blessing for us. And I know that it is a blessing for you in a different way, because while I'm out of the pulpit, you have a chance to hear from our terrific preaching team. How many of you have ever been in a church where the associate pastor preaching was excruciating? Want to raise your hand? Yeah. Some of you then know, and if you don't, then you have no idea the blessing that we have with the bench of preachers that they have. Every one is superb, and they did a, a great job this summer in our Fearless Q series. So I thank you, say thank you to my colleagues. And it is good to be back with my beloved sweetheart church. It has been a, um, it has been a summer of firsts for the Toon family. Uh, we, the biggest one, I would say, is that we sold our home of 28 years. It's the first time that we've ever moved, ever, ever lived in another place besides the home that I was in when I met Cindy. And uh, we have been talking, actually, a great deal about living more simply, living smaller, uh, spending less on ourselves, and learning how to give more away. And this last spring, we just felt compelled to take the plunge. And so we put it on the market, and 16 days later, it was done. And, uh, and so then we went through the traumatizing process of downsizing. And uh, we sold off all but about 10 pieces of furniture, and we moved from a 3,200-square-foot home into a one-bedroom apartment. And uh, it's a lovely, don't feel sorry for us until you see the apartment. It is a lovely place with a gorgeous setting, but it is a little smaller. And, uh, and it, uh, honestly, it has been so sweet and so simple uh, and, and a real blessing as we learn new rhythms. And so that was a first for us. It was a, um, it was a first for us in that the, for the first time in six years, both of our kids came home to stay all summer, which was ironic given the fact that, yeah, you don't have a bedroom anymore, but here, come on back. So Rachel literally slept in a closet. Cooper slept on the floor in the living area, and we tripped over each other all summer and played pinochle, and it was wonderful. It was sweet. It was the first in that my son got his first full-time job. Uh, he put on his big boy clothes every morning, and he commuted to Bremerton and worked as an intern in the Kitsap Bank up there, and he was so proud of himself, and we were proud of him too. And it was the first time that my daughter uh, preached for her home congregation, and we were proud of that too. So there have been a lot of firsts. Maybe the most cataclysmic first occurred about a week ago when one of the members of my own family, for the first time, beat me in a game of golf. Would you like to guess who that was? It was Cindy. She played superbly. I hope she enjoyed it because I'm never playing golf with her again. (laughs) 
This morning, as we begin our new series on prayer, I want to uh, show you another first. And if you were really sharp, you're going to pick it up in the text that I'm going to tell the story of, that I'm going to recite for you. There's a first and only appearance of something that occurs in this text. So I want you to pay close attention. I'm going to tell you a story. It comes from Luke 11. You can open it now, but I'd rather you just listen as I tell you the story, and then you can open it afterwards as we engage with the text for the sermon. Let me tell you a story from God's story, from God's word. This is the word of God. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight And say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend... Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks him for a fish, will instead of the fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will instead give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. So Holy Spirit, we ask you, Father, we ask you, pour out your spirit this day as you already have begun. Pour out your spirit as we hear your word. Pour out your spirit into our hearts that we might be truly changed and transformed as we listen to the living word of God. For we ask this in the name of the one who gives us access to you, your Son, our brother and Lord Jesus. Amen. So did you spot the first? It's the first time, while well, Jesus is in prayer and, and his disciples are gathered around him. He was, he was in prayer a lot, as we discover. So there were many times that the disciples were sitting there, waiting, watching, listening in as Jesus prayed to the Father. And when he was done, one of the disciples, we are not told who it was, but one of the disciples finally asks something of Jesus that, so far as we know, was never asked before that. 
is never recorded as being asked again in the rest of any of the Gospels. This is a first, the first time he does it. The disciple says these words, Lord, teach us. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. These are the disciples who are following the Lord. The whole point of a, of a disciple-master relationship was to teach. And yet, we have no other recording, despite all of the remarkable things that Jesus did. We have no other recording of the disciples saying, Lord, teach us something. And think of all the options. They could have said, Lord, teach us to walk on water. They could have said, Lord, uh, teach us to uh, cast out evil spirits. Lord, teach us how to multiply, multiply fish and loaves. That would have come in handy. Lord, teach us how to turn water into wine. Or Lord, teach us how to heal a paralytic. Or Lord, teach us how to calm a storm. Or Lord, teach us how to raise the dead. For Jesus did all of these things. And they watched him do all of these things. And it was pretty impressive. But that's not what the disciples ask. The first and the only time that we ever have a recording of the disciples saying, Teach us something. It is, Lord, teach us to pray. Would you say that with me? Lord, teach us to pray. Here's what's interesting. It wasn't even a request. The... The form in the in original Greek, it's here's my Greek nerdiness, but it is actually the imperative mood. And if you'll think back to your grammar, you re- realize imperative is what? It's a command. You say, sit down, go away, shut up. That's the imperative mood. And that is the request. The disciple doesn't come to Jesus and say, Lord, would you please, pretty please, would you teach us to pray? And it is much bolder than that. I don't think it was insolent, but I do think it was very gutsy for him. And and it was more of a pleading, Lord Jesus, we have watched you all of these years pray. We have seen you in the presence of the Father. We have sensed the relationship that you have of intimacy with God. And we have seen answered prayer. We have seen the power that falls upon you. And Lord, we need that. If we're going to do what you tell us to do, if we're going to be what you tell us to be, we need what you have. So Lord, we beg you. Lord, you must, you must teach us to pray. It was a desperate cry from the heart of disciples who wanted more and knew they needed more. Last spring, I prayed that prayer to the Lord. I cried out that prayer to the Lord. Lord, teach me to pray. Teach us to pray. Because the truth is, and I'm not proud to share this with you, over the course of my Christian life, my prayer life has really, it stinks at times. A lot of times. I'll be praying along, but then I, then I soften up, then I slow down, then I turn my attention to other things, and then I begin to feel guilty. Or I become afraid, or I, I'm particularly sen- a sense of stress or, or a need, and, and so I redouble my efforts, I become more prayerful again, I promise I'm going to do better, and it lasts for a while until I get distracted. Until I get busy, until I become self-sufficient, and then my prayer begins to stink again. And so goes a, a pernicious cycle in my own 
prayer life. But last spring, as I was thinking about all that lies before us as a congregation, as I was thinking about our call to be disciple makers who make disciples, as I was thinking about our, our mission to working together to present everyone mature in Christ, I became overwhelmed with the sense of helplessness. How can we possibly accomplish this? As I was thinking of the fact that we have hundreds of people who show up on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night, hundreds of you who, if the truth were told, are not really engaged with what God is doing in your life. You might show up on a Sunday morning, you might come to worship, but you're not in prayer, you're not studying the Word, you're not engaged in ministry. Truth be told, you're just kind of given a one-hour nod to God, and then you're going about your, your business. And then I began to think of the fact there are thousands around this church building, thousands, who will spend an eternity separated from God in a place that Jesus called hell. Because his people will not speak the words of salvation, which they themselves have received, but now will not share with others. And as I was thinking of all of that, the the burden of that, overwhelming nature of that, my heart just cried out. I was overwhelmed with the realization that we cannot possibly accomplish what God is calling us to do. We cannot do it in our own strength. We will only continue, as my daughter preached this summer, dabbling around the edges. But it was more than that for me, because I realized as I was thinking about these things that I want more for myself, honestly. I want more in my spiritual life, more than obedience, more than duty. I'm a very dutiful guy. You give me an assignment, I'm going to take care of it. But I surely my faith can be more than duty, more than obedience, more than checking off the boxes, more than compartmentalized in different times of the day and in the week that I'm doing my spiritual stuff. I long to experience what the fathers and mothers of our church, of the it sounds through the centuries have experienced where their, their prayer life is woven into their everyday life, where they have a sense of the presence of God all of the time, where Paul says, pray without ceasing. I have, a, I have a longing for something more than that. And so as I was thinking and praying about this, and I brought this to our team, and by the way, every, every decision we make, a leadership decision, it, that is what we do. We talk about it together. We pray about it together. And in unity, we all said, yes, this is what we must do. As a church, we must entreat the Lord to tell us how it is. We must cry out to Jesus, just as that first unnamed disciple did. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us as a church. Teach us to pray. And so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to spend a year doing that. And if that makes you feel a little overwhelmed, it makes me feel a little overwhelmed too. But I, we, we need to stay at it. We need to build new muscle rhythm. We need to build new habits. And we need to experience the power of answered prayer that only fuels greater prayer. And so we're going to do it. And we're going to try all kinds of things. We're going to challenge you to do baby steps. For some of you, this would be overwhelming. So little baby steps. Others of you, we're going to give bigger chunks to take off, to bite off. And together, we're just going to take a step forward in our mission as we say, Lord, teach us to pray. So how did Jesus answer this order that came from his disciple? Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, he, he does th- three things. He says what to pray, how to pray, and what to expect. What to pray, how to pray, and what to expect. So first of all, he starts by saying these words. Father, 
Hallowed be your name. Now, do those words sound familiar to us? What are they? The Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, we have come to know them, although really we ought to call it the Disciples' Prayer. The Lord's Prayer comes in John 17. Go and read that sometime. But this is the Disciples' Prayer. This is how he is helping us to learn how to pray. And and yet there's something... The, the, uh, Tim Keller is, has written a book called Prayer, which I commend to you if you want a starting point. I don't agree with everything Keller says, but most of it is really spot on. And he makes this claim, the Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Think about that. Even unchurched folks are familiar with that phrase. Can stumble through some of those phrases, even if they're pagans. But did you notice something interesting about the way I recited it? Anything unusual to you? Did it sound different? Shorter? Missing some stuff? Yeah. That's because the the text of the Lord's Prayer that we ordinarily use in our liturgies, in our worship services, we find in Matthew chapter 6, the the Sermon on the Mount. It's a longer version of the Lord's Prayer. And in fact, that is what we are going to be studying over the 10 weeks to come. We're going to parse that a piece at a time and understand it. But I wanted to start our series with this passage out of Luke, the parallel passage in Luke 11, for two reasons. First of all, it's the only place in any of the Gospels where we read them, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. It's the longing of my heart. I long for it to be the longing of our heart. We've made it the sermon series title. And so it seemed a good place to start. Here's the other reason, and I think this is a very important distinction to see. Uh, it reminds us that the Lord's Prayer was never intended to be just a series of rote, memorized phrases that we mutter mindlessly, that we repeat over and over again. As a matter of fact, as I'll show you next week, Jesus was speaking exactly against that kind of praying. We discover as we are studying this that, in fact, the Lord's Prayer is intended to be an outline. Jesus didn't mean for us to just kind of rumble through a set of words mindlessly. Rather, each phrase teaches us something about God, about us, about our engagement with God's world. And so we begin to discover that the Lord's Prayer is really a skeleton upon which we hang our prayers. And this is pretty important because if Jesus intended that the Lord's Prayer was to be prayed exactly like he said it, then we've got a problem already because Luke doesn't have the same words. Right? So if the inspired word of God has a different version of this, then there must be something more to it than that. And I would argue that this is the case, that what he's trying to do is teach us an outline upon which we hang the totality of our prayer life. So he teaches us what to pray, and we will go over that in the weeks to come. All right? He teaches us how to pray. How to pray. And he does so in a delightful parable. It's really kind of winsome if you think about it. He asked the disciples to imagine that they are pounding on their neighbor's door in the middle of the night, uh, trying to get them to get up and give them some bread for a friend who has shown up out of the blue unexpectedly. There were no 7-Elevens in those days. If you didn't have any food, you better go to your neighbor. That's the only source that you had to get some some food. How warmly was that neighbor received? Not very warmly. Do not bother me, he says. The door is now shut. My kids are with me in bed. I'm not going to get up and give you anything. Go away. And yet, the neighbor continues to pound incessantly until he gets what he wants. 
Uh, how many of you have seen a TV show called The Big Bang Theory? Any of you? Uh, it is a pretty funny show. It's about a physicist named Sheldon Cooper who is both brilliant but obsessive, compulsive, and completely neurotic. And uh, among the many quirky things he does, one of the quirkiest is the way that he announces himself when he comes to a neighbor's apartment. Pay, pay attention. Benny? 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 Penny. 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 Leonard. 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 Penny. 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 Benny. Would you find that irritating? I would find that very irksome. Here's what's astounding. Jesus says, that's the way you should approach the Father in prayer. And, and the reason that we know that is because of one of the words he uses to describe the Sheldon character in the parable. Did you see the word? Impudence. Although he will not get up to help him because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. Say impudence. There is nothing about that word that is salvageable. It is, it is a bad word. It is a word that, bads, that describes uh, un, uh, ungracious behavior. Impudence means rudeness. It means excessive boldness. And Jesus is saying, this is the way we ought to feel free to approach the Father in heaven. God, God, God. And if you have any doubt about it, he goes on to say something else about that. I have a life group fr- uh, friend who's one of my members of my life group. A couple of weeks ago, he said, I really am uncomfortable asking the Lord for things. Because he's a big, got a big job, a lot on his plate. Why would he want to uh, worry about the little things that I'm going to bring to him? And Jesus says, no, you cannot think this way. This is what you do. God, 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 ask, he says, seek, he says, knock, he says. Be, be impudent in your approach to the Lord. You know, the, the word sometimes is translated as persistent. But it's only because the Bible translators just can't bring themselves to use the word as it was intended to use. It is impudence. We boldly, brashly are invited to come to the Lord and the Father says, Come on, come on. And then the last thing we learn from this teaching is what to expect as a result. Jesus asked his disciples to imagine what kind of a father would slip a poisonous snake into his son's lunchbox. What kind of a father would slip a a scorpion into the Easter egg basket of his kid? Of course, there weren't a lot of Easter egg baskets among the Jews at the time, but but you get just... Work with me here. It would be a monster, right? It would be monstrous. It's unthinkable. And then Jesus goes on to say, If you then, who are evil... By the way, if you ever had any wonder of Jesus' assessment of our spiritual condition, that is about as clear as it can be. If you then, who are evil, the Lord says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit... To those who ask him. What can we expect in response to our prayer? This is very important. Jesus tells us to go ahead and ask for the things we want. 
Go ahead, he says. Ask for daily bread. Ask for the necessities of life. When we read of him teaching in, in Matthew in the, in the Lord's Prayer or in the, the Sermon on the Mount, he does the same thing. The Lord knows you need these things. The Father knows you need food and drink and the rest. So go ahead. It's fine. Ask him. He wants to provide that for you. But the most important thing that I am discovering in my journey this summer, the most important thing that God is teaching me about prayer is this. It is not primarily about God filling my laundry list of requests. Prayer is primarily, primarily about giving him what he is most interested in giving me, which is what? Himself. Himself. Prayer is not just a laundry list of needs. Prayer is the chance to have God give more of himself. For what is that if it's not the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God who is with us, in us, around us, and working through us. And he says, if, you're, if you as evil fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit if you will just ask him to do so? Prayer is not us sitting on Santa's lap and asking for our Christmas goodies. Prayer is more like us sitting on our Father's lap, leaning against His chest, hearing His heart, and enjoying His presence. When was the last time you prayed like that? Did you? Have you ever prayed like that? Not because you feel guilty or because you want something from Him, just because you want to spend time with your Heavenly Father. If it's never or if it's been a long time, then it's one of the things that we are going to learn together in this year. So, how's your prayer life? I've done confession to you. What would you admit to me and to us? Did you pray yesterday? Did you pray any time last week? When was the last time that you prayed with your spouse, your wife, your husband? When was the last time you prayed with your child or grandchild? When was the last time that you noticed yourself getting into a a snit at work and instead of carrying on down that road, you paused and said, Lord, calm me, be with me. When was the last time as you were driving along, you heard an ambulance uh, uh, siren and you paused right in that moment as you prayed to offer a prayer for that unknown person who is completely known to the Lord? How is your prayer life? One of the Whitworth professors says that a Christian that does not pray is like swimming on a couch. The metaphor doesn't even make sense. You see that? To be Christian is to pray. To be Christian is to be in relationship with God. And yet I'll bet there are many here this morning who, if they were to admit it, would say that they are swimming on their couch. Don't you want more from your spiritual life than that? And so, as with so many things, it begins with a decision. Keller poses this, uh, this idea to us. Imagine that you have a terminal disease. And, uh, and there's one pill that you can take. If you take it every day, it will hold that disease at bay. And as long as you take that, you will be fine. But if you forget even one day to take that pill, then, you, then it will likely be fatal for you. He asks the question, so how diligent do you think you would be at taking that pill? And he goes on to make the point, I came to discover that I needed prayer. It's just not an ought to. It's an I got to have it to survive every day, faithfully every day. And I wonder if that resonates for you. 
We have a terminal illness of spiritual death that looms over us and we fill our lives with all kinds of things to disguise it or to avoid it. When we have the simplest thing right there that will hold that illness in check and it's called prayer. And prayer gives us life because it connects us to the giver of life. But we prayerless Christians have lots of excuses. We say, I'm too busy. Ah, but you're not too busy to read the newspaper in the morning or to watch three hours of TV in the afternoon, in the evening. Um, We say, I forget. And yet you manage to remember all kinds of important things throughout the day. You say, I'm bored, and yet you get up and you'll do your workout because you know that's good for you, even though that's kind of tedious. So, beloved, I say, enough of the excuses. If you were to decide right now, I am going to pray every day, you could do it. And so I charge you to do that. Something that has helped me is this. I've trained myself. The first thing in the morning when I wake up and stir into consciousness before I lift my head from the pillow, I start in prayer. The first thing I pray for is the one that's sleeping right next to me in my bed, my wife. I pray for her in that moment. And I thank God for her. And then I pray for other things. And then at the other end of the day, before I go to sleep, the last thing I do before I lay my head down, again, I pray. I've I've taken to bookending my day. It's not the only praying I'm doing, but I'm assured that beginning and end, my first waking hour, my last waking moment, I'm going to pray. I invite you to do that. Make a sign. Put it on your alarm clock so that you begin to train new spiritual muscle memory. That's just one thing that I would suggest, and I urge you to do it. Unless you really think that you don't need God's help in life, then let's get started. No more excuses. Let's spend a year growing and building our muscles in prayer. And this is a great tool. Pastor Megan put this together. It is a great piece of work. And so I want you to go out and get this, and I want you to use it. You'll have a chance. to. Every day will be a prayer of the day, and you can read that, pray that prayer back to God, and then make some notes about what the Lord is saying to you in that moment. There will be a place for you to take notes with sermons, so bring it every Sunday to church and take sermon notes because every, you know, every word that falls my, from my lips, you want to capture them, I'm sure. <laughs> and there's also a guide for the life group. So we're going to challenge you to do new things as a life group, to practice new prayer practices. This week, we're going to say, get down on your knees and pray as a life group. Change your posture before the Lord. If you, even if you're studying something else, I mean, I would love if every life group would say, we're going to dive into this year of prayer with our church. But even if you choose to continue to do another study, could I entreat you please to join with the church family in the most important thing that we can do, which is to seek the Holy Spirit, to pray for God's Spirit upon our lives. All right? Listen, we need this. We cannot be the church. We cannot be the people that God wants us to be if we will not Pray, Lord, teach us to pray. And so to close, and I know we're running a little over time, and that's just tough. (laughs) Um, We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to ask you to do something if you're able to. I want you to get down on your knees. It won't be easy. We're not exactly Episcopalians here. We don't know how to do it, and we don't have the place for it. But if you can't get on your knees, I would at least ask you to lay your head down on the pew in front of you and posture ourselves in humility before the Lord. And I'm going to lead us through the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to pause at each phrase and pray about it. So would you please say one phrase and then wait for me as I pray this. All right? I will say next when it's time to pray the next section. So join me in prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven... Pause right there. What a privilege it is to call you Father. 
It is a, an audacity that no Jew would have considered. For surely the God of the universe cannot be also our Father. And yet that is the, the, that is the God that Jesus introduced us to. Abba, Daddy. And we are able to call you Father because Jesus is our brother. And we thank you for that access. Our Father who art in heaven. Next, hallowed be your name. Lord Jesus, Holy Father, Holy Spirit, you are holy, you are hallowed. We declare that you are righteous and true and good. None is greater than you. There are no other gods. And all who would exalt themselves, all who would lift themselves up, there is none that deserve the appellation of holy and awesome and glorious but you. And we declare that is who you are. And we say, Lord, may our lives be a reflection of your holiness to a world that does not know you and even disdains you. Hallowed be thy name. Next. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This seems like a pipe dream, honestly, Lord. As we look at the world today, as we think about all that is broken, as we commemorate uh, a day of evil, it seems a a far-fetched idea that your kingdom is coming, that your will is being done. And at the least, we look to the future when one day Jesus will return and all will be made right, and all will be glorious, all will be done according to your will. But Lord, we believe that even now you are saying that through us, through your people, through your church, you want to have your kingdom come right now. You want to begin to break into this world right now. And so we pray it in faith and in obedience. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next, give us this day our daily bread. God, we thank you for the gift of life, of food. And we confess, Lord, that we are so selfish and so um, spoiled. When we look at all that we have, the size of our homes, the size of our bank accounts, the size of our repast every night, and we think about those around the world who have nothing and who would be utterly gobsmacked by the, the abundance that we enjoy. Lord, we say we're sorry for being selfish. And we pray that we would remember that everything we have is a gift from you. Give us this day our daily bread. Next. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We cannot really fathom, Lord, how it is that you would forgive us when we were uh, hated you, when we were evil as Jesus declared. And yet you pursued us, you loved us, and through your son made it possible for us to experience forgiveness. So we bow before the wonder of that gift. And Lord, we promise to try to forgive as well as you give us the strength to do so. That person that immediately comes to mind, the one that we are bitter towards, the one that we hate, the one who did us dirt, God, help us to forgive them as you have forgiven us so that we might experience that forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Next. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again this day, Lord, we remember what evil looks like, the face of it, as it smashed into towers, as it took innocent lives. But there's all kinds of ways that we engage in evil ourselves. It's more refined, more subtle, but it is just as pernicious. 
And we ask you by your spirit to lead us away from, not to it, deliver us from evil. Next, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You alone are king. You alone are God. And you will be so forever. We look to the day when we will gather with all of your saints around your throne of grace and sing holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. We offer up these prayers in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said.